On the Jake Beer Show today, I am happy to be joined by Dr. Scott Parazinski, who is a former astronaut. Uh, he's a doctor. Uh, he's also a climber, and he's also explored volcanoes, and he's done a bunch of things science-related. How are you doing today? Couldn't be better. I'm uh, calling in from uh, beautiful New Orleans, Louisiana, uh, where I'm uh, here at a meeting, but uh, great to join you today. That's awesome. Uh, my first question is, how did you get involved in aviation and in the space community, and what made you want to become an astronaut? You know, my dad worked uh, on the space program when I was very, very young. In fact, he was an engineer supporting the Apollo program that first sent astronauts to the moon in the late 60s, early 70s. And so not very far from where I'm standing now, actually, uh, at the Mishu facility, they built the mighty uh, first stage of the Saturn V booster that uh, took those you know, pioneering flights to the moon. And uh, yeah, so I, I grew up in and around the space program and, and dreamt of one day myself, you know, flying in space and maybe even setting that first boot print down on Mars. It didn't uh, you know, quite work out that way for me yet. You know, maybe I'll still get a chance to uh, visit Mars one day, but uh, you know, I, I think um, you know, Mars exploration is with human astronauts is, uh, is right around the corner. Maybe it's something you'll get a chance to do. <laughs> and speaking of the Mars colonization and everything like that, uh, this is just a quick question that just came to mind. I saw a video on it last week. Uh, there's a chance I've heard, I don't know if this is exactly true about Venus. We cannot really land on Venus, but the atmosphere is somewhat Earth-like or we could have a blimp there. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think we could see a possibility of that happening in 20 or 30 years? Yeah, that, that's a great observation. In fact, one of my good friends, Guillermo Sunline, is involved in that uh, Venus to Mars initiative. And you're right, we could actually have uh, habitats in the, uh, in the cloud cover of, of Venus uh, that uh, would be you know, very habitable and uh, probably a, a pretty desirable place to, uh, to extend human presence. But on the surface of Mars, I, I believe the temperatures are in excess of 800 degrees. There are sulfuric uh, uh, gases and, and rain, and it's it's uh, yeah just a, a really awful place down on the surface of, of Venus. But up in the um, I guess the equivalent of the stratosphere, uh, it, it, there would be potential to uh, both experience a gravitational field uh, somewhat similar to what we have here on Earth, but also you know um, have a an environment that you know could be colonized for sure. Absolutely. And uh, what was it like for you after you became an astronaut? What was it like getting ready and uh, about going to space? What was that like for you as you were there on the launch pad getting ready? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's uh, about two years prior to uh, actually walking out to the launch pad that requires an enormous amount of training. Um, there's the, the system level knowledge that you have to have, um, all the details of the, the space shuttle, how it operates how uh, it, it might fail and the procedures that you might follow should those things happen. So that's uh, exciting training in a variety of different simulators um, and uh, preparing to do spacewalks and flying the robotic arm and all of the, the scientific experiments that you, you'd be doing on your mission. So lots and lots of preparation, but you're right. It does come down to that moment of uh, strapping in and, getting ready to, uh, to leave 
you know, planet Earth. And, uh, you know, you have lots of butterflies, quite honestly. You know, you've, it's something that you're very excited to go do, but you realize that it requires 7 million pounds of thrust to, to allow that space shuttle to, uh, to leave the launch pad. And uh, you hope everyone has, has tightened down uh, every bolt that exactly as they're supposed to and that everything works uh, per plan. Um, and uh, you, know, you just have this huge grin on your face when you, you start to feel those, those engines beneath you start to, um, to, accel to accelerate the vibration builds beneath you. And, uh, and then at, at T0, when you clear the launch, launch tower, it's uh, um, one of the most extraordinary experiences of life. Um, the power that uh, you feel um, and, and then, of course, eight and a half minutes later, when you finally achieve a safe orbit at main engine cutoff for Miko, um, it's, it's magical. You know, things start to float around the, uh, the crew compartment and uh, you look out the forward window and you can see the full curvature of the earth beneath you and the brilliant blue oceans and uh, uh, you finally arrived. So uh, I really hope that many, many more people get a chance to experience what I've had the, the privilege to experience as an astronaut. It, it's a, a life-changing experience. And we live in this extraordinary time where you know, there are companies like <clears throat> SpaceX and Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic, they're gonna be taking many more people to have uh, you know, these, these powerful experiences. Absolutely. And uh, what would you say was the best thing, what was it like once you got to space, of course, um, when you were in space, you completed seven spacewalks, uh, which is a lot. What was that experience like for you? And of course, one of them I saw was a very dangerous one when you had to fix the solar array. What was that like for you, spacewalking and looking down on Earth? Yeah, the, the ultimate astronaut experience, maybe the ultimate human experience is getting to go outside of your spaceship in a spacesuit, um, sort of in your own personal spaceship, and to be enveloped in the enormity of the universe. It's just, uh, you know, overwhelming. There's just a thin visor between you and the, um, the blackness of space, the, the trillions and trillions of stars that are out there. And um, you, you, you feel so, uh, so fortunate to have, have that guide's eye view, so to speak. But uh, it's, uh, it requires a lot of, a lot of training um, and you're out there to do very serious work. So most of the time you're, your head's down and, and working on whatever, whatever it happens to be that you're working on. Um, you mentioned the solar array repair that we did on my last spatial mission. It was quite exciting and dramatic uh, having to stitch together a live solar panel. Um, but uh, a, a lot of thought went in, into doing that safely. Uh, brilliant engineers in, in Mission Control Houston and, and uh, uh, around the country actually developed a procedure to allow myself and Doug Wheelock to go out to the very tip of the space station and safely conduct a, a critical repair on the space station, um, along with some really fancy robotic arm flying by my crew members uh, inside and my, my commander, Pam Melroy, uh, guiding the whole process inside the ship. So a lot of teamwork uh, goes into going outside and doing things like that. But um, you know, every once in a while, you get a chance to, to glance up from your, your work and uh, you look down and there's the Great Barrier Reef or there are the Himalayas. I think I can spot Mount Everest you know, uh, beneath us. You know, you're traveling at 17,500 miles an hour 
Um, so it's just uh, sort of an otherworldly, extraordinary place to be. Absolutely. Uh, and I hope to experience the view myself one day. I hope to actually go on an orbital flight someday. Um, yeah. We'll see. I've, interviewed, I've also had on Richard Garriott, who went on Space Adventures, and Gregory Olson. Um, but that's a little bit more expensive at the moment still. What are your <laughs> thoughts on, um, I guess, what, are, what was the best thing living at the space station? Well, you know, everywhere you move, you're, you're, you're floating and flying. And, um, and so having that opportunity to have the freedom of motion uh, of a, a weightless astronaut is, is just amazing. Um, so I, I, I really loved the whole experience of learning to live and, and work in the weightlessness of, of space. But um, I think that the most wonderful aspect of it is being a part of something that's larger than life. You know, building the International Space Station, supporting the Hubble Space Telescope, you know, doing cutting edge science that benefits all of humanity, doing it with a team of people that you really care about, um, both on orbit with you and also in mission control and back in, uh, in Houston, uh, the instructors and uh, scientists and engineers that help prepare you. Um, you know, being a part of something that's truly meaningful like that is... Uh, is the greatest reward. And uh, yeah, so I hope, I hope you get a chance to, to experience that as well. Absolutely. And um, what would you say was the best experience that, or the best experiment that you got to do while you were in space, unless uh, some of those, even spacewalks, what would you say the best one was? Well, they they touch on so many different areas of science. So we, we did a lot of uh, human life science experiments. So how does the human body adjust and adapt to the weightlessness of space? Uh, we did a, um, other types of bio, biological research, including plant biology. How can we grow crops, uh, hydroponic growth in space to support human life um, in the future? Um, we did combustion physics. How do things uh, catch on fire? How can we put out fires in, in space? You know, they propagate differently uh, without gravity, believe it or not. Um, how do materials assemble um, without the, the gravity vector that we have here on Earth? It's, it's very, very different. Um, you know, so there's material science that takes place, uh, astronomy and astrophysics, uh, chemical engineering, so many different areas of, of science that we touched on. But I think probably the most uh, impactful for me was being a part of a mission called STS-95 when we, uh, we did life science experiments with Senator John Glenn, who's our very first American to orbit the Earth uh, back as part of Project Mercury in the early 1960s. And he came back to fly at age 77. And I was there on board as his personal physician, but also to help uh, support the, the life science research that we did with him, comparing how an older astronaut adapted to space is compared with uh, a much younger astronaut crew. And uh, so that was really part of, you know, part of history, but also pioneering science that uh, I think will, will pay huge dividends now, now that we're about to open this new era of commercial human spaceflight, where many people, including very, very old astronauts, will have the opportunity to fly. Um, and just real quick about commercial space, 
what are your thoughts on when do you think that we will likely get to Mars? Do you think it'll be by the end of this decade or when do you think it could be? Well, I, I think if there's a, an international uh, uh, collaboration and a drive to get to Mars, uh, um, we could certainly do it right now. You know, we, we, you know within a decade, we, we could have our first uh, boot prints on Mars. I hope that when we do go there, it won't be simply boot prints, but uh, you know, going there to stay, uh, building a habitat akin to what we have at, at the South Pole, uh, the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station. Um, there's a lot of science to be done there, a lot of exploration, and we should build infrastructure there so that we're not just planting uh, flags and boot prints, but we're there to, to stay and, and perhaps even colonize as, uh, as Elon Musk has, has identified as his lifelong goal to make uh, humanity a, a multi-planet species, which I think is, is pretty cool. And just while we're on this topic of space traveling and things, uh, what are your thoughts on the moon, the next, for the next moon landing, the Artemis program? Of course, it got suspended by a year, uh, targeting out mm -hmm. 2025, I believe, for the moon landing flight. Uh, what, are, what would you say is going to be different about this moon landing compared to the last one? Well, I think we'll take uh, much more advanced technologies, more capable um, life support systems and, and the ability to stay a little bit longer. But I, I think it needs to be with the goal of learning to live off of the land, to be able to uh, do what we call um, in situ resource utilization. NASA loves acronyms, but uh, ISRU. Um, can we uh, use the, the water ice that's there to generate oxygen to breathe and water to, to grow plants? Uh, can we you know, create a, a longstanding habitat for human explorers? Can we use it as a eventually a, a launch pad to take us to, to Mars and places beyond. So this first flight in, in the 2020s, I, I, I won't hazard a guess as to when that actually happens, but it could be 2025, it could be 2028, we'll see. Um, I, I think we need to do that. And I think we need to go there with the intention to, uh, to create a, a permanent human presence and outpost there. We have a lot that we can learn that will allow us to one day colonize Mars as well. Absolutely. And then just one last space question. Um, what are your thoughts on us potentially landing on one of Saturn's moons or Jupiter's moons? Do you think that's a possibility by the end of the century? Yes and no. Um, you know, the, the, the problem with getting uh, close to, to uh, Jupiter um, or Saturn is that they're actually uh, quite high uh, radiation environments. So um, until we really learn some radio protective measures, it's going to be really difficult to send human explorers there, I think. Um, there are a lot of really exciting reasons to go there. Um, Europa, one of the uh, ice-encrusted moons of uh, those planets, um, and, and also Enceladus and Titan, um, they have a, a nice crust with liquid uh, oceans underneath. And so, you know, would we find the Loch Ness monster there? Would we find single celled, you know, amoeba there or something in, entirely different or nothing at all? Um, it, it's hard to say, but, um, you know, the, the science truly beckons us there. And perhaps the easiest thing for us to do is to, uh, you know, send robotic explorers there first to, to 
pour through the ice and uh, you know take samples to, to see what we can learn from that um, pretty extraordinary environment. Perhaps one day we'll be able to send people too, but uh, in the short term, I think that's going to be fairly difficult. Absolutely. And now just getting real quick to what it was like being a climber, you had the chance to climb Mount Everest. You've also explored volcanoes. What has that been like? Well, I, I love going to challenging places that require both a, a physical preparation as well as an intellectual technical capability that, um, you know, uh, you know, is not easy. And so, you know, going to Everest, going inside Messiah Volcano, um, other things that I've been very fortunate to take part in. Um, you know, it, it takes a lot of planning, um, a lot of forethought, team building, technology, um, physical and, and uh, mental training as well. So uh, yeah, I, I've really enjoyed pressing the, uh, the boundaries of human performance. And I also like going to places like that because they force us to think in different ways, to, to be innovative. And, uh, and quite honestly, it's been a catalyst for me as an inventor and a product developer. You know, when, whenever we send people into challenging environments, um, you have to think in a different way, uh, find solutions. And, and many times the, the things that you develop for those environments have real value back here at sea level on, on planet Earth. And so that's, uh, that's one of the exciting things for me to be a part of. Absolutely. And just a few more questions. Um, what was it like when you reached the top of Mount Everest? What was that moment like for you? Gosh, you know, uh, it took me two tries to get to the top of Mount Everest. The first time I ended up rupturing a disc in my low back at about 24,000 feet above sea level. Very, very painful and, uh, uh, you know, very disappointing because I was just a day away from, from topping out on the mountain. And uh, I had to make a very difficult decision whether or not to, to uh, continue on, press my luck and maybe make it to the top. Uh, Certainly, it would have been risking my own life, but more importantly, it would have been risking um, the, the safety of my teammates. And I didn't want to do that because I know they would have done everything they could have to, to help me if I had basically collapsed uh, above Camp 3. So I made the difficult decision to turn around. And uh, thankfully, I was able to return the following year and summit. Uh, and I can tell you that the things that we have to work the hardest for in life mean the most to us. And so you know, the euphoria that I felt finally making it to the top of the world, it's, uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. It's uh, about the size of a, you know, a standard um, you know, kitchen table, with very steep sloping sides all around it and uh, covered in these you know, beautiful multicolored Tibetan prayer flags. And there's a golden Buddha up on top and, uh, um, everything falls away from you from that vantage point. And uh, knowing how hard that I worked to get there, um, you know, the 30 minutes that I, I stood on top were, you know, truly etched in my mind as some of the, the most significant in my life. And how long did it take from when you started the hike until you reached uh, the peak of Mount Everest? And then, and then when you came back down, how long was that? Was that uh, 10 days long or how long did it take you? Yeah, so the, the way you, you approach a, an 8,000-meter peak or any very high mountain is that you have to acclimatize to the, the thinning air. 
uh, at, at extreme altitudes. So we, we uh, take uh, progressively higher sojourns up, up the mountain. So we'll hike into the base camp, which is about 17,500 feet above sea level and spend about a week uh, just, to, just to rest and, and some simple hikes around there. And then we'll go up to camp one at uh, uh, about 19,500 feet, spend a night or two, come back down, rest for several days, then we'll take another rotation up to Camp Two at 21,500 feet, come back and rest for another week or two, and then go up to Camp Three at, at uh, 24,000 feet. And uh, that's our final rotation. Come back down, and you wait for the the weather window to open up. Uh, you know, looking at the forecasts, hopefully having several days of of clear weather, and uh, and then it's uh, you know just a you know three to four days to get to the summit and then a, a day or two to, to descend. So it's uh, uh, about a month long. not something. Yeah. It's, it's about two months uh, away from home actually. Wow. So you, know, you, yeah. you leave your family and then you'd see them again in about eight weeks, sort of like a space flight or something like that. It's very much like a space flight. Um, but, you know, thankfully there are good communication assets and you can just stay in touch with the, uh, the, the rest of the world. But um yeah, it's, a, it's a, a very, very big commitment. And two last questions I have is, uh, what would you say was harder, uh, becoming an astronaut or climbing to the top of Mount Everest? Well, Jacob, I, I think um, you know, physically and mentally, the toughest thing I've ever done was the, the climb to the top of Everest. But uh, um, it, although it was difficult, it was really enjoyable as well. And, and same with my astronaut training. I enjoyed the rigor of it you know, the, the demands of it, um, you know, flying in space is actually a lot more comfortable. You know, the only time when you're a little bit uncomfortable is on launch and landing when, when you have to wear those, you know, big, hot, uncomfortable uh, launch and entry suits. But by and large, it's, it's pretty darn comfortable and, uh, um, and really exciting. So um, I wouldn't, you know, trade either experience, um, but uh, you know, fortunate to have been able to do both. Wow, and it's it's truly awesome what you've been able to do. And then one last thing is, what advice would you have for young people out there who want to go to space one day? Maybe not as a NASA astronaut, but just as a person who wants to explore, uh, like a bunch of people with what they're doing with uh, and well with what Inspiration Four did. Uh, yeah. Origin. What what would you what advice would you have for them? Gosh, that's a, a great question, and and the time has never been better to uh, set your sights on the stars. There are going to be so many opportunities for young people to, uh, to explore space. And it, it doesn't always have to be, you know, through a government agency like NASA. You know, some of the best and brightest engineers today are aspiring not to work for NASA, but to go work for SpaceX um, or Blue Origin or, or Virgin Galactic. And, and there'll be opportunities to fly there. Um, so, that, you know, maybe you become a commercial astronaut as opposed to a, to a NASA astronaut. So, you know, the, there'll be many more seats available for really bright, motivated, science and engineering literate young people. And so I guess the best advice I can give you is uh, to work really, really hard. You know, the, the language of the future is science and math and engineering, uh, and I'll throw in medicine as well. So, you know, the more well-rounded you can become in the, in the skill sets that are important for the space program, you know, there will be opportunities. There's no doubt in my mind. Sure. 
Thank you so much for coming on. It, it, great hanging out with you. Appreciate the invitation.